Now, I wish we could take credit for scheduling the sermon on sports to fall on the same weekend as the beginning of the 2016 Olympic Games. Unfortunately, we are not that smart. <laughs> it was either dumb luck or the inspiration of the Spirit, depending on your theological bent. So, but either way, for the next couple of weeks, 500,000 spectators will gather in Rio to watch over 10,000 athletes compete in over, compete for 5,000 medals in 400 events. An additional 3.6 billion people will be watching at some point on TV. That's about half the Earth's population. It's a lot of people and a lot of sports. Now think about it for a minute. Aside from a world war, what else could command that kind of attention from that many people in that many nations for that long a period of time? The truth is not even a terror strike or a natural disaster can sustain that long a news cycle. The global community can't find a way to come together to fight climate change or stave off nuclear war, but we can come together to play games. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What does it say about us and about sports? And think about how long sports has been a prominent feature of human society. The games we're watching this weekend had their beginnings some 3,000 years ago. Eighth century BC. Every four years, the ancient Greek city-states would declare a truce, and they would send representatives to uh, compete in uh, athletic and artistic contests, foot races, jumping contests, boxing, wrestling, discus and javelin throws, along with vocal competitions and poetry smackdowns. In the words of one historian, the Greeks idealized physical fitness and mental discipline and believed that excellence in those arenas honored Zeus, the greatest of the gods. And here we are, three millennia later, spending $75 billion a year on sports. That doesn't count gambling. That doesn't count sports merchandising. Over 60% of Americans describe themselves as sports fans. Now, we have someone from Nesson in the congregation, and he grabbed me after the first service and wanted to clarify that a little bit. He said, in the city of Boston, 77% of women identify themselves as Boston Red Sox fans, 77%. He said that on any given night, any given Red Sox game, 1.1 million people will tune in at some point to every single Red Sox game. It's a lot of sports. Now, most folks will say that the favorite sport on their list is professional football. The NFL tops the list followed by uh, Major League Baseball, college football, NASCAR. <laughs> Belongs with country music in my book, I don't know. <laughs> and then the NBA with the NHL just coming in right behind there. You'll notice that poetry didn't make the list. <laughs> the thing is, even if you're not part of that 60% who call themselves sports fans, there is no way to escape the hype and the hysteria, the, the lunchroom conversation about the game that happened last night or is coming this weekend. And we haven't even begun to talk yet about recreational sports, fantasy sports, and kids' sports. 
Now, full disclosure here, I am part of the 60% who would call myself a sports fan. And like most Americans, I would put football at the top of the list in terms of spectator sports. And most weekends in the fall, I'll try to watch a little bit of a game. Most other sports, I tend to catch it playoff time. I'm not watching a lot of baseball this season for some <laughs> obvious reasons for those of you who know me. But I become a big fan of American Ninja Warrior. You, you need to check it out. And in spite of my advancing age, I still enjoy to play when I get a chance, a pickup game of football or soccer or basketball, a little pond hockey, a game of tennis, whatever. I'm usually up for that. And as you're all tired of hearing, I like to run and bike and swim and those kinds of endurance sports. So all that just to say, I have some skin in the game as we explore this topic of sports. So what does all this mean for us spiritually? It's interesting that even the ancient Greeks detected a spiritual undertone to their athletic pursuits. So are sports good for us, bad for us, both or neither? Where does sporting culture intersect with Christian faith? And if God is whispering to us through our athletic pursuits, what might he be saying to us? That's what we're going to go after this morning. Now, you might be surprised to find the Bible actually talks about sports. And I'm not referring to Genesis 1-1 in the big inning, okay? It's an old, tired joke. No, I mean the real deal here. So let's go to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul is writing here. And listen to what the great apostle has to say as he writes words of encouragement to his fellow Christ followers. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Now notice how freely and positively Paul turns to sports as a metaphor for the spiritual life. He affirms athletic pursuit, physical fitness, even the competitive spirit. Now, what makes this all the more interesting is that he's writing this letter to Christians living in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth hosted every two years games called the Isthmian Games. They weren't quite as, as expansive in scope as the Olympic Games, but every two years, people would come from all over the region to compete right there in the city of Corinth or just outside of it. So the people reading this letter are very familiar with all of the sports metaphors that he's using here. They would have been used to seeing athletes training and competing in the streets of their city. Uh, they were very familiar with the image of an emperor placing a, a, a crown on the head of the victor of some contest. In fact, it's possible that Paul and his tent-making partners actually made some of the tents that would have housed the athletes and the spectators during these Isthmian games. So I'm not suggesting that Corinth was quite as sports-crazed as Boston, but I do want us to understand that, that Paul is speaking to a culture not that much different than our own when it comes to sports. And what makes his comments even more remarkable is that most devout Orthodox Jewish authorities of the day would have denounced sports as a worthless and worldly pursuit. And yet Paul 
This great spiritual leader finds something to admire in athletes and in sports, something that could inspire his readers to pursue their faith with similar intensity and focus. Is it possible that Paul was part of the 60%? Was he a sports fan? Well, let's keep going. It gets even more interesting. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul compares himself here to a competitive athlete, a runner, a boxer, who sets his mind on a worthy goal and then pushes himself to attain it. It even sounds like he trains physically so that he might be fit, body, mind, soul, and spirit, to carry out the work that God has called him to, to be worthy of that crown that he hopes his Lord will place on his head someday. Is it possible that Paul himself was an athlete, a runner, no less? We don't know. But it is interesting that over the course of his career, Paul is going to face incredible physical and emotional challenges, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, long voyages by foot and by, by ship, seasons of deprivation, food, water, rest. He needed to be strong in his entire being to carry out God's call on his life. He, I think of him as the original Iron Man. Let's look briefly, just a, a couple other passages, and then try to draw a conclusion here. In the letter of Timothy, as Paul writes to this young pastor, he says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, even though Paul is acknowledging here that spiritual fitness is more important and eternally significant, he still does affirm the value of physical fitness and training. In his next letter to Timothy, he once again turns to a sports metaphor. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. So he's reminding Timothy and us that in the same way that players have to compete within a certain boundaries, a playing field, a set of rules to compete at their very best and to, and to play the game properly, he says there is a proper way to live the life that God has called us to. And by the way, if you're part of the 40% who don't enjoy sports and who really don't enjoy sports illustrations and sermons, blame it on Paul, because he started it. <laughs> and finally, as he comes near the end of his life, facing possible execution at the hand of the emperor, he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. As Paul envisions the sum total of his life and ministry, he turns to a sporting metaphor to capture it. I have finished the race. Sounds like a marathoner. And he looks forward to the crown that the Lord will set on his head someday. But notice, it's not really a crown of success. It's not a crown of fame. It's not even really a crown of beating other people. It's a crown of righteousness. 
of good and godly character. And so that's the first thing we learn at this intersection of faith and sport, that athletic pursuits can be beneficial to our minds, bodies, souls, and spirits, whether we're watching or playing. In the same way Paul found himself inspired by the athletes of the Isthmian Games, we too can be inspired as we watch, as we uh, behold the, the skill, the commitment, the intensity, the dedication of elite athletes. Now, I mentioned I'm not a huge NBA fan and, and even a little less of a LeBron James fan, but as I watched him in the playoffs a couple months ago, watched him elevate his game and his teammates' game to lead them to a come-from-behind victory, to win his hometown city of Cleveland a championship after all those years with all that pressure resting on him, I became a fan. Somebody from Cleveland in the crowd. <laughs> I not only became a fan, I found myself inspired to, to want to do my best at what God calls me to do, to be worthy of whatever gift, opportunity that he provides to me, to be worthy of people I serve with and, and serve for. The same thing will happen to us as we watch for the next couple weeks in the Olympic Games. We're going to see incredible feats of courage and displays of athletic skill never perhaps seen before on the planet. We're going to hear stories of people who come from out of nowhere and overcome incredible odds and obstacles to reach the highest echelon of their sport. And we are also going to encounter moments of defeat and despair and even brokenness that test the spirit and reveal how it is to handle those moments with grace and dignity. We've seen some of them already this weekend. These are powerful examples. They inspire us to do and be our best. And, and if watching sports can do that for us, how much more participating in sports? Paul tells us physical training has value. He wants us to take care of the bodies, minds, soul, and spirits God has given us so we can use them at their very best for his glory as long as we have opportunity to do that. We know that participating in sports is good for us physically, emotionally, mentally, socially. It sharpens our mind and spirits. It keeps us healthy and focused. It, it can build relationships and create great moments of bonding with friends and family. I mean, how many of us have vivid memories of watching TV with our families and screaming at the TV as the hometown wins or loses a championship game? We've all known moments like that. And so like any of God's good gifts, food, drink, music, work, sports can be a positive, God-honoring dimension of our lives. It can help us do our best and be our best at whatever it is God calls us to do and be in this life. Now, I felt like I needed an insider's perspective on all of this, someone who is closer to sports and sports culture than I or any of us might be. And a couple of Sundays ago, I happened to see sitting here in the congregation, Fred Smurlis. Now, some of you will recognize Fred as an uh, all-time, uh, all-pro nose tackle, five-time all-pro nose tackle, played for 14 years in the NFL, many of those years with the Buffalo Bills, and then finishing his career right here in his hometown playing for the Patriots. 
Now, Fred is now an entrepreneur. He's a sports TV and personality well-known here in the Boston area and around the country. He and his wife, Christy, are also part of the Grace Chapel family. So I gave Fred a call and said, can we talk a little bit about this, about this sports thing? And, and I asked him, first of all, to talk to me about the positive impact that sports has had on his life. And he told a pretty good story that he gave me permission to share with you. He said his story begins with him being, and I quote, an overweight kid who liked chess and stratego. <laughs> his brother was the natural gifted athlete. But as a preteen or a young teen, he got so tired of being beat up on the playground, he started lifting weights. Right about the time puberty and hormones kicked in. And in a matter of months, he looked and felt like a new person. Strong, confident, focused. Soon he was playing football, wrestling, track and field at Waltham High, winning all state honors in all of those sports every single year. And suddenly this working class kid from Waltham had big time universities knocking on his door, offering him free rides. Well, the rest of the story is well known. Four years at BC, 14 years in the NFL, considered by many to be the number one nose tackle still in NFL history. So it's clear from his story that sports tapped into or unleashed something deep inside of Fred, something God had placed there. It enabled him to become not just a player, but a person that he never imagined he could be. It not only kept him out of trouble, it, it, it gave him confidence and taught him lessons like, uh, like humility and discipline and teamwork. Now, clearly, God had gifted him with size and strength, but sports provided the venue and the motivation for him to discover and develop, develop that God-given talent so that in the end, it became a source of great joy and fulfillment for him, a source of great inspiration and entertainment to many people who watched, and now provides him with a platform for doing good in the world and representing Christ in a very challenging industry. Now, if you happen to be sitting near Fred right now in the sanctuary, please don't sneak a selfie with him until you get to the lobby afterwards, maybe. <laughs> All this to say, sports can be a legitimate and God-honoring dimension of our lives. It can be a source of health, happiness, well-being, strength, confidence, and fulfillment, and godly character. So we might put it this way. Sports whisper God's story when they inspire us to do and be our best. Sports whisper God's story when they inspire us to do and be our best. And I hope you're recognizing that's what tr what, what's true of sports is true of all the aspects of culture we've been talking about in this series. Whether it's hero movies or Disney stories or reality TV or popular music. I hope you're understanding that our purpose in this series is not to beat up on culture, and it's not to run away from culture. It's to engage our culture thoughtfully, reverently even, listening for the whisper of God. As Paul demonstrates for us here, encouraging us to look and listen to the world of athletics for its redemptive messaging. At the same time, every week in our series, we have discovered there is a dark side 
to these various expressions of popular culture. They can actually diminish or even undermine God's best for our lives and for human society. And so some of you would be happy for the sermon to end right now for a variety of reasons, but the Bible's not done talking about sports. Now, this next little bit is not quite as obvious, but it is every bit as important. So let's go to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You probably recognize these verses as the beginning of the Ten Commandments. They're found twice in the Bible, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. So as God is leading his people out of slavery in Egypt, leading them into a promised land, into a better future he's prepared for them, he lays down for them 10 principles, 10 truths, 10 guidelines, 10 boundaries that will ensure them a, a good and long life in the land he's prepared for them. And the first is that they should have no other gods before him. Now remember that worshiping many gods was the way of the world in those ancient times. They're leaving the land of Egypt, which had many gods, and they're entering the land of Canaan, which had even more gods. And these gods were, were worshiped with ceremonies and celebration and sacrifices and gifts and acts of devotion. People looked to these gods for happiness and security and protection and provision. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, is, is reminding his people that he alone is to be the object of their admiration and their trust. In fact, that phrase, no other gods before me, could just as easily be translated, no other gods beside me, or no other gods nearby me, or as I was thinking, no other gods anywhere in the vicinity of me. You see, a throne only has room for one occupant. And the Lord wants to be on the throne of his people's hearts. The second command is similar, but goes on to warn people not to make gods of their own. You see, we are physical beings. We experience the world physically. And so it's difficult for us sometimes to admire, to trust, to relate to things that we can't see or hear or touch. And so people in the ancient world would fashion for themselves gods that they could see and feel and touch. They would worship created things, the mountains, the sun, the moon, the river, oxen, lions, strong and magnificent animals. And then they would form for themselves, they would take strong substances like wood and metal and stone and fashion uh, an image of that God. They would take something beautiful and, and valuable like, like gold or bronze or silver or marble and fashion something. 
And that strong and beautiful thing would become the object, not only of their admiration, but of their trust and devotion. They would set it up in their homes or in their communities, and they would feel good when it was there. And they would pay attention to it on a regular basis. And they would live their lives around that particular thing. And before we write them off as primitive, unenlightened people who didn't know any better, and before we stray too far afield from our subject of the day, maybe we should ask, how easily and how often do we turn to sports as a reason for our happiness or our significance or our confidence or our worth? If my team wins, I'll be happy. If my kid excels at sports, he'll be popular. And P.S., so will I. If I drive my son or daughter all over creation to participate in sports, I'll be a good parent. If I'm physically fit, I'll be desirable and strong and can fend off illness and age. If I get my workout in, I'll be in control of my environment and my emotions. If I can go to the game or watch on TV, I'll be able to relax and de-stress after a tough week. If I win a trophy or a t-shirt, I can feel good about myself. If I can be like Mike, for those of you who remember Michael Jordan, if I can be like any of my sports heroes or even wear their jersey, Maybe, ah, some of that specialness, some of that worthiness, some of that talent will rub off on me, and I can feel better about myself and about life. Before you know it, we are spending ridiculous amounts of time and energy and money seeking happiness and strength and significance in something as temporal and fleeting as games. If it was meant to be a gift that would bring out the best in us, begins to bring out the worst in us. Pride, and vanity, and self-indulgence, and laziness, and rivalry, and anger. The closest I've ever come to a fistfight was not in a bar. It was in a church softball league. <laughs> I was the youth pastor. See, when we look to other things and people for things that can only come from God, when we give to other things and people things that rightfully belong to God, we become idolaters. I'm going to put that on the screens. I'm going to define idolatry as looking to other things and people for what rightly comes from God and giving to other things and people what rightly belongs to God. So when we look to sports to provide us with the happiness or the strength or the significance that only God can give, when we give to sports the time, energy, and devotion that rightly belongs to God and his purposes, we are bowing down to false and lesser gods. And if you think I'm overreacting a bit, let's turn our attention to the screens for just a moment and uh, share with you a short clip from the film Concussion that came out just last year. 
tells the story of Dr. Bennett Amalu, a forensic pathologist who first discovered a connection between uh, football injuries and traumatic brain injury. And as you can imagine, his efforts to bring it to the attention of the NFL that they might do something about it, those efforts were not well received. So listen in on this very brief exchange between Dr. Omalu and some other pathologists and attorneys. What do they want? The NFL wants you to say you made it all up. I made it up. They're accusing you of fraud. If you retract, you'll be fine. This all goes away. Why, why, why are they doing this? They're terrified of you. Bennett Amalu is going to war with a corporation that has 20 million people on a weekly basis craving their product. The same way they crave food. <laughs> the NFL owns a day of the week. The same day the church used to own. Now it's theirs. They're very big. The same day the church used to own, the day that God still owns, but sometimes gets robbed. There was a time when the first priority on that first day of the week was to get you and the ones you love to a house of worship, not just for a quick hour so you could hustle off to make the game or kickoff or the kids practice, but for an hour or two or three so you could worship and take a class and talk to people afterwards, maybe serve and help clean up. Used to be that the rest of the day, Sunday, would be sent celebrating and reflecting on God's many good gifts, including the people who are a part of our lives and the freedom to rest and change the pace a little bit. Think of it this way. If aliens were to visit New England on a September Sunday. Where would they find the most passionate and devoted worshipers? In church or at Gillette Stadium? And by the way, have you ever wondered why at a game it's perfectly acceptable to throw your hands in the air and to hug a stranger, to cry like a baby? And it's cool. It's even admirable. You're passionate and devoted. But in church, if you do this, <laughs> you get a little misty-eyed, you know, a little weird, it's, you're weak. If those aliens were to listen in on conversations happening Saturday, Sunday afternoon or evening, would they hear friends and families talking about what happened in church that day? or about the big game. If they were to watch parents and children interact over the course of the week, would they see moms and dad teaching their kids how to pray and tithe and read the scripture, or how to lay down a bunt or drop in a layup? If you were to ask these aliens what it is that earthlings worship, what brings them joy and meaning? What brings them together and sustains them as a people? Would their answer be faith or sports? So what we're discovering here is that it doesn't take much for an idol, icon, to become an idol. 
couple letters difference, that's all. Something we look to for meaning and comfort and strength. It doesn't take much for something good to become a God that demands more and more of our time, energy, money, and attention, and heart. And before we know it, we have replaced the God who loves us and wants the best for us with a lesser God that can never satisfy our deepest needs and our highest longings. And so if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable right now, if you're suddenly aware of how sports has gotten out of whack in your life, if you're suddenly realizing that you're giving time, energy, attention to athletics that you could be giving to other people or pursuits, to church, to family, to marriage, to friendship, to your community. If you're suddenly realizing that that sports has become a distraction from, a rival to the God who is jealous for your love and affection, then we all stand guilty as charged, as idolaters. And my guess is that for about 60% of us, it's probably true, including me. And if it doesn't apply to you in sports, Perhaps it applies to some of these other aspects of culture we've talked about. Because it doesn't take much for an icon, something we admire, to become an idol, something that we worship. For something good God gave us to enjoy, for that thing to become a God that begins to control our lives. So let's add a qualifier to the idea we introduced a few moments ago. Sports can whisper God's story when it inspires us to do and be our best for the glory of God, the good of others, and the well-being of our soul. You see, when sports help us to delight in the bodies God has given to us, the health he's given to us, then it truly glorifies God. When our athletic activities bring us closer to the people and pursuits that are most important to us, it is good for those around us. And when sports revitalizes our minds, bodies, souls, and spirits so that we can more fully serve God's purposes, then it is good for our souls. I got an insider's view on this, again, in my conversation with Fred. He went on to tell me about the year he got selected for the Pro Bowl, first time. Sent to Hawaii to play with the very best of the best on a national stage. The thing he had always worked for, the thing that he had dreamed of had finally come to pass as a fairly young man. The promise of many, many good things to come. He told me that when he looked around himself at that moment, as he looked at the players and the game and the hype, it suddenly occurred to him, this is not all that different than Waltham High School. It really doesn't mean anything more than that. The people are no more impressive than that. It was so disappointing. It left him empty. He was hoping for something much, much more than that. And apparently the same thing was happening to many of his fellow players. And he began to watch at ways they tried to fill that void they had discovered, typically with women or booze or drugs or gambling, making a wreck of their lives. Fortunately, there were some players in his life 
who demonstrated the kind of strength and confidence and, and fulfillment that he longed for. And when he asked them about it, they pointed him to Christ. And it was only a short time before he found his way to a personal relationship with Christ. That even as he continues to enjoy great success and accolades, that faith relationship with Christ is still the centering feature of his life. And that's, of course, how it was for the Apostle Paul, too, as he came toward the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. However much Paul might have admired or maybe even enjoyed sports, he understood that it was just another one of God's good gifts, meant to be enjoyed in a way that glorifies God, that blesses the people around us, and is good for our souls. And if it becomes anything less or other than that, it's nothing more than idolatry. So if you've never discovered this true source of ultimate meaning, joy, strength, and satisfaction, you can do that even today simply by receiving Christ as your Savior and your Lord, putting him on the throne of your life. If you're already a follower of his, maybe you're sensing today that you've allowed sports or something else to push him off of that throne we have an opportunity now as we come to the communion table to receive that forgiveness for the first or the hundredth time and to once again place the Lord Jesus right at the center of our lives and on the throne of our hearts. Let's bow in prayer before we do that. Lord, week by week, we are amazed and grateful that your word your ancient word speaks so clearly to our contemporary world, to the lives we live and the challenges we face, the gifts we enjoy and the temptations we wrestle with. So thank you, Lord, for meeting us here in these moments at the intersection of faith and sport. We do thank you, Lord, that for many of us here in this country, we enjoy great freedom, opportunity, wealth to play, to have fun, to exercise. We realize that many, many around the world don't even begin to think about having that kind of luxury. So we're grateful for that and for the joy it brings to our lives. But Lord, we pray that we would never allow this or anything else to crowd you out of our lives, to keep us from becoming and doing all that you have for us as individuals, as households, and as a community of faith. So meet us in these moments as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.